1: That's moe, M-O-W-I, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot US, to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife, or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet, made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping, as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, it's my interview with Nigella Lawson. We discuss what's to love about brown food, what's to hate about tasting menus, and what everyone gets wrong about cooks.
2: That's why I always say to people whenever someone says, oh, but you're a cook and cooks are so nurturing. I go, listen, they are, but really we're control freaks.
1: We'll hear from Nigella later in the show, but first it's the story of Milton Hershey, the man behind America's favorite chocolate bar. So
3: Milton S. Hershey, the builder of an ideal town continues to build. Mr. Hershey, how many years have you have been in the candy business? Sixty years. Are you still active in the business? Indeed I am. You know, you must use an unbelievable amount of cocoa beans. We use as much cocoa beans as
4: France, Switzerland, and Italy, and Spain put together. Hmm.
1: This radio interview is the only known recording of Milton Hershey's voice. At 80 years old, he was still running his chocolate empire, but his path to fame and fortune had taken many turns along the way. Joining me now to talk about his life is Amy Ziegler. She's the senior director at the Hershey Story Museum in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Amy, welcome to Milk Street.
5: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: So this is the story of Milton Hershey, which turns out to be a much more interesting story than I guess I I thought at the beginning. So he didn't start with a ton of success, right? He, He started with a candy shop in Philadelphia. Uh, Just give us a a summary of some of his early days.
5: Sure. Yeah, he was not an instant success. Um, His mother was a strict Mennonite, believed in education until you were old enough to get a job and contribute to the family. His father, on the other hand, loved traveling, had lots of get-rich-quick ideas for business, and moved them all over the place when Milton was young. So... He really only ever, he said, attained the equivalent of a fourth grade education, but he actually apprenticed with a candy maker for four years. When he finished his apprenticeship, he moved to Philadelphia in 1876 and he opened a shop.
1: And that, did that store survive? or he, I think he sold it at some point, right?
5: Well, it didn't survive actually. Um, his father got Milton involved in a couple of business ideas that didn't pan out very well and he ended up declaring bankruptcy six years after he got there. So he traveled around the United States, Chicago, New Orleans, ended up in New York City, and was also unsuccessful there. But he traveled to Denver between his Philadelphia and New York businesses and that's where he learned how to make caramels. Um, The person he studied with there was actually using fresh milk instead of paraffin wax, which was an unusual thing to do. So when Milton Hershey came back to Pennsylvania after his New York failure, he really started to focus on caramels, and that was sort of the beginning of him being able to get on his feet again.
1: So I read that he sold the caramel business for a million bucks, yep. uh, which was a lot of money back
5: then. In 1900, yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that's a
1: huge amount of money. So he takes that money, and then he spends it in part on figuring out how to make great milk chocolate. Uh, and then he has a lineup, you know, a catalog of over 100 items. Yes. And some of the stuff, some of these are pretty cool, tennis, cigarettes. Uh, Zuka sticks, little container shaped like mail pouches that went into a boxcar. Yeah. So they had a, a lot of really cool sort of specialty items, right?
5: Yes. And a lot of those items, actually, all of those items were really not milk chocolate. They were dark chocolate, which is what people were doing at the time. So he was experimenting with making milk chocolate between 1893 and 1904, and the Things that he did to really make chocolate available to the masses were he used less expensive cocoa beans and roasted them at a higher temperature, which improved the flavor. And he also used mass production techniques. So when people always compare him to Henry Ford, that's kind of where that comes in. And he also was a pretty good marketer considering he didn't use national media. He wrapped postcards inside chocolate bars that showed Views of the factory and the community that he built around the factory and things like that.
1: The early Willy Wonka. Exactly. Well, you mentioned communities. I think this is an interesting part of the story because some companies built their own model villages. I think actually um, the Kohler Company out in the Midwest near Milwaukee, they also built a, a community. So the idea of a model community for your workers was something that Hershey was very much behind, right?
5: Yes. Industrial communities at the time that Milton Hershey was beginning to think about building Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, they were pretty common. And so places like Bourneville in England, which was built by the Cadbury brothers, was a really great example of people who took good care of their workers and provided a lot of things for them outside of the workplace. Um, Something like Pullman, Illinois, which was the community started by the man who created sleeper cars, was not a great place to live. And there's a good chance that Milton Hershey visited Pullman when he was at the Columbian Exposition in 1893, where he purchased his first chocolate-making equipment. And so I think he really paid attention to what worked and what he didn't want to do when he was starting his own community.
1: So let's dig into the details, because I think people will find this surprising. Uh, A men's club, a gymnasium, a pool, a library, a bowling alley, public meeting rooms. Uh, And there was also a newspaper, a golf course, a trolley system, a miniature railway, a man-made lake. And and the zoo was the largest free private zoo in America. So this wasn't (laughs) just, you know, some housing and the company store.
6: Every housing comfort of the 20th century for the workers. And the man behind it all? Milton S. Hershey. He built a model town, including this great community building with its library, gymnasium, playroom, solariums, and one of the most beautiful theaters in the land.
1: So he goes to Cuba around the First World War, and what happens in Cuba?
5: Um, It's interesting how he ended up there. His wife passed away in 1915, so he and his mother decided kind of on a whim to go to Cuba. And he Almost immediately fell in love with the island, started buying up sugar plantations, and then eventually built an entire community called Hershey, Cuba, which was very, very similar to Hershey, Pennsylvania.
1: So, if I went to Cuba today, would I see any of this? Does any of it survive?
5: As far as I know, the Hershey sign is still hanging at the railroad station. Hmm. Um, The baseball diamond that was built in the community is still there, and kids still play on it every day. So it's there. People who live there still call it Hershey Cuba, even though the name changed years ago. But I will say two of my favorite days working at the Hershey Story were when two different families who grew up in Hershey Cuba came to visit us. One man hadn't taken a vacation in 15 years, and he came to Hershey, Pennsylvania, because he thought we were the only people who would appreciate Milton Hershey as much as he did. So
1: what happens to him? He's he's has a huge fortune and then he I think he gave it all away to a school or something at the end of his yes.
5: life. Yes. Yes, so um he and his wife were unable to have children and he always said it was his wife Kitty's idea that they start a school for orphans. So he took his holdings in the chocolate company, almost his entire fortune, which was estimated to be $60 million at the time, and he put it into a trust for the school. And he didn't tell anybody, which is always amazing to me. It's one of my favorite Milton Hershey stories.
1: Do you take away from this anything about the American dream? You know, we were entering the Industrial Age in the late 19th century. You know, the Rockefellers, Hershey, a lot of people making their fortunes. Mm-hmm. Was Did he stand out in some way as being different, or did he sort of... Show off traits that were consistent with, you know, Pullman and everybody else?
5: Some. I mean, obviously, he was very driven and wanted to be successful, but I don't think that for him, money was necessarily success. I think doing something that he loved that provided a good product to people meant a lot to him. I mean, he built things and did things that operated at huge losses for most of his lifetime. But he still kept funding them because he thought they were important for people to have. And I'm always struck when he was 21 years old, he wrote in someone's autograph book, a quote that basically says, one is only happy in proportion as he makes others happy, and kind of goes on to talk about giving your things away to help other people. And he was really struggling financially at that time. So for him to be thinking that way at that time of his life, I think is really foretelling about how he was going to be later on.
1: Amy, thank you so much. The story of Milton Hershey.
5: Sure, you're very welcome.
1: That was Amy Ziegler, Senior Director at the Hershey Story Museum. Now it's time to answer some of your baking questions with Cheryl Day. Cheryl is, of course, the owner of Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. She's also the author of Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. So, Cheryl, I used to know or thought I used to know what to do for Valentine's Day. I don't know what to do. (laughs) <laughs> anymore. now I've been maybe I've been married, you know, too long and too many kids. But I need advice here. What is it you would like Griff to do for you on Valentine's Day?
3: Well, that's interesting. Normally, I want him to cook something delicious and I'm happy with that. But for the first time, gosh, maybe ever, we're actually going to our favorite neighborhood restaurant hmm. and I've told A lot of friends to go. I think it's going to be one big party. That sounds great. (laughs) And, you know, with a group of couples that won't be necessarily at my table and I don't have to do the dishes. But, yeah, kind of like a little group of folks are going to be hanging out at this one restaurant, and that's what we're doing this year.
1: So instead of the two lovebirds... At the dark table with a candle and the flowers, right? <laughs> it's it's a party. It's like we're gonna. It's gonna, gonna
3: s- be a party. <laughs> All
1: right. Okay, let's take a call.
3: Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Cheryl. This is Louise Allen. Hi, Louise.
7: Where are you calling from? Well, I'm actually down the street. I live in South Florida, but I started today a pastry arts program at Boston University.
3: Wow, that is exciting.
7: Well, how can we help you today? Growing up, there was a bakery in Carl Gables that we all loved. It was called Andalusia.
8: Mm-hmm. And
7: one of the things they made was called a chocolate meltaway. It was a round ring danish, and it had pockets of pastry cream and pockets of some kind of a chocolate. And I tried to find the recipe online, and I haven't. And I've tried to recreate it without much success. So I'd love to know if you have any ideas.
3: Well, first of all, it sounds absolutely delicious. Is it a traditional Danish recipe and then it has like a vanilla or chocolate pastry cream?
7: I would say it is a typical a traditional Danish, but it is in a ring, not in individual servings. So it would serve maybe five, six, seven people. Oh wow. And it had, I would say looking back that it was probably a traditional pastry cream and some kind of a chocolate custard maybe or maybe even now
3: that you say that maybe even a chocolate pastry cream yeah if it's a custard it would be a chocolate I'm just not sure how to get it like into the pockets yeah I'm not familiar with this particular recipe Chris is that something you've heard of
1: the reason I've been so quiet is I have never had this (laughs) and I I mean I can imagine how you could make it but but let me uh, just
7: suggest if you think to a pastry ring that maybe has A pocket of a strawberry jelly and maybe a pocket of an apricot jelly. It's kind of a net mold, but this one had pastry cream.
1: What? Is it like a sort of a croissant-like interior that's very airy or or what's the inside like?
7: Like a cheese Danish. It's that kind of a Danish.
1: Well, I assume they just take the pastry cream in a big icing bag with a nozzle and shove it into the side of the thing and, and fill it. But I love the idea of different flavors in different places in the ring. That sounds great. Is the outside covered with something, or is it just plain pastry on the outside?
7: The whole thing is the outside. Don't think about like a Danish that's a roll Danish. Right. It's a ring, and then it has these different pockets, if that makes sense. Would you cook it with the pastry cream in it, or would you add the pastry cream afterwards?
1: After it's baked you'd add the pastry cream with a big you know a nozzle with on the a end big of a pastry ring bag. like
3: that. Yeah, yeah, almost like how you would fill a donut afterwards. It sounds like But it's not filled, it's on the top. Oh. It's not filled. Oh.
7: So when okay. you look at it, it's like the size of a cake. It feeds like six, seven, eight people.
4: mm mm-hmm.
7: Probably eight to ten inches across. And then it has these circles, maybe three inches around of all the different fillings either the fruit ones or this was a chocolate melt away, probably a chocolate pastry cream and, and a regular pastry cream and then twizzles of chocolate across the top.
1: You said Andalusia Bakery, but when I was in Madrid a couple of years ago, a few years ago, they do have like a Christmas cake. Is like a king cake. It's round. Mm-hmm. They do have a filling inside. They slice it and fill it, but the top is full of stuff. It feels a little like it's based on that Spanish cake, that king's cake. I wonder if it's related to that recipe, because all the bakeries in Madrid, I was there in December, were just full of those cakes.
7: I did find one bakery in the United States that advertises it, but they don't give out the recipe.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But Louise, now that you're in pastry school, I wonder if you'll have the opportunity to crack this code. Well, I'm going to
7: work on it. We will be making puff pastry. I know that. and So maybe I'll convince the class to give it a try.
3: When you described it, I was going to say that you could, you know, use a basic Danish dough and make it into any all kinds of shapes and then bake it and fill it. But this is sounding like something different entirely. I've got to look this yeah. up.
1: Louise, thank you so much. This is, um, I hate to say it, but food for thought. Thank you. Thank
3: you both. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Love the
1: show. Take care. This is Mill Street Radio. If your cheesecake is cracked or your cookies just won't snap, give us a call anytime. That number is 855 426 9843. That's 855 426 9843. Or simply email us at questions at millstreetradio.com.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, hi, my name's Lindsay out of Waco, Texas. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? I'm excited to be here. So, how can we help you today? Well, this past holiday season, my
9: uh, husband and I, we came across a toffee recipe, and of course, we wanted to try it out at home for ourselves, and we had never made a toffee before, so that experience went really well, but one of the last steps in the recipe was when the toffee was still hot, was to sprinkle uh, chocolate chips on top to let it melt and then kind of have that chocolate covering, and while... Um, It's tasty and great. When we're ever holding like the toffee, the chocolate starts to melt on our fingers. And we kind of wanted to elevate the recipe and try to make it something that we can kind of pass around um, for kind of years to come that we were wondering what recommendations y'all had for that chocolate. Right now, we were just using like chocolate chips, but I think there is something to do with tempering. I just wasn't exactly sure
3: what that might be. You're using chocolate chips for the chocolate portion, is that correct? Yes. We pour the toffee onto the
9: pan, and then while it's still hot, the chocolate chips go on, let it melt a little bit, and then we spread it
3: out to kind of create that covering. Yeah. Do you make toffee, Chris?
1: No. I eat toffee, (laughs) but I don't make toffee.
3: Chocolate chips usually don't melt. They hold their shape. I wonder if you could do a simple chocolate drizzle on top with melted chocolate and you definitely want to make sure that you don't use chocolate chips for that you want to use a nice quality chocolate to melt it but what do you think chris well
1: if you temper chocolate it will remain solid and glossy at a higher temperature i've tried tempering chocolate twice and I can't say I had a lot of success with that. Can you buy tempered chocolate?
3: No. I mean, I think the main thing when you're tempering it, and I'm actually no expert at tempering it, I do know that I want my chocolate to be nice and shiny and not grainy. So the way that I achieve that is just making sure that I don't overheat it and you're making sure that it's cooling down properly. Are you sprinkling the chips on top or are you melting those chocolate chips?
9: Essentially, like, the heat from the toffee is what melts the chocolate. Got and it. It, it kind of gives you that covering. I'm wondering when you're saying, like, the temperature, if the toffee, like, the sugar, if that's too hot, that it kind of... Right. Absolutely.
3: The, yes. That, Absolutely. That what I would do is let the toffee rest and set up and then do a drizzle, you know, yeah, like a stripy a drizzle on top and then I think that would really elevate the look of it and then you could choose a nice quality chocolate and melt it either in a skillet with some water underneath your bowl or over a double boiler and then make sure it doesn't get too hot it stays shiny and then you can just kind of drizzle it on top either putting it in a pastry bag or just even you know taking a fork and just kind of striping the top just depends on how elevated you want to take this <laughs>
1: you don't want that, that chocolate to get really hot if you melt it
3: yeah and you can visually look at it too lindsay you know you don't want it to break on you or to look grainy at all sometimes i make my own toppings for cakes and things and what i do is i melt the chocolate you just know, spread it out on a sheet pan. And put it in the freezer or the refrigerator for a little bit of time, and then it sets up. So I know that would work for sure. Okay. Does that make sense? It makes sense then. Why it starts melting in my hand. (laughs) But I I think the drizzle
1: is a great idea.
3: I could go for a piece of that toffee right now. My husband and I, we love y'all's show, and we... I've
9: always waited to have a question to call and ask. And this was finally <laughs> like, yes, we can call them
1: Milk Street. <laughs> I'll leave you with one last thought. I just remembered that you can temper chocolate with a sous vide.
3: But who has that oh. at home? Well,
1: that you can buy them for 80 or 90 bucks. I mean, some are 50 or 60 bucks. I mean, that's not nothing, but they're not $400.
3: You'll be going in business then, Lindsay, with this <laughs> talk. Well, no,
1: sous vide will perfectly maintain the right temperature. So anyway, that's just a thought,
7: oh,
3: man. which
1: Cheryl does not like, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> what are you doing, man? Cheating, cheating. Well, thanks so much for calling, and good thanks luck Thanks for calling,
3: that. Lindsay. Well, yeah. yeah, thank you guys so much.
1: Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, The World According to Nigella Lawson. That's right after the break.
8: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
7: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
1: This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, I'm joined by food writer and TV cook, Nigella Lawson. Her latest book, published in the U.S. in 2021, is called Cook, Eat, Repeat, Ingredients, Recipes, and Stories. Dijala, welcome back to Milk Street.
2: Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here.
1: So we're going to talk a bit about your most recent book, Cook, Eat, Repeat. We have talked about it before on the show, and I told you how much I really love it. Um, but you said something interesting in that book. You said a recipe, much like a novel, is a living collaboration between writer and reader, And in both cases, it is the reader who keeps it alive. I just love that notion of the reader keeping your
2: work or my work alive. But don't you think that's so? I mean, a recipe can be written, a recipe can be printed, but it's really the recipes that are cooked and that are passed from family member to family member or just become part of people's lives. That is what keeps a recipe alive.
1: Um, A couple things also from your book. You, you don't apologize for brown food. I totally agree
2: with that. Uh, au contraire. Yeah. yeah. Au contraire. <laughs> au yes. contraire, you mon like brown <laughs> <laughs> No, I and- I love that. Yeah, I love it. I I feel Instagram, while it's done many good things, has somewhat prioritized the pretty or the boldly colourful. You know, and, and pretty food is uplifting, as is colour, but it doesn't it can't take the the place of taste you say
1: as a kid you were a big reader and that you're still a big reader very few people you know read a lot of books these days so do you find that you select friends uh, who are big readers too
2: well i think not on purpose but i have and that because i you know years ago you know i i you know, was a book reviewer. And, um, and so in a way, that's where I come from. I think some people read, I tend to guard my reading jealously. I mean, I people I often feel I don't watch enough TV, but you can't do everything. And I so love silence. Like I have a couple of friends I watch TV with all my kids. But if I know the option of silence is not possible, then I'm happy to watch TV. But if I'm by myself and therefore silence is on offer, I wouldn't turn on the television, not because I don't think television can be wonderful. However, I have a problem with noise. So reading silently is something I, I need. I feel it's like eating for me. I've always said, for me, reading, reading I'm now I'm actually forming new words. Um, for me, you know, eating and reading are similar and writing and cooking also are analogous.
1: Well, cooking, you cook, serve, eat, it's done. Unfortunately, writing, you have to keep going back to it and, and, and burnishing it and making it but better. But you do so. that
2: all the time when you cook. Yeah, it's just okay. over a smaller, yeah. you know, a more condensed time frame. It's less painful, that's for sure. But on the other hand... All the cooking you do comes out of the cooking you've done previously and right. the eating you've done previously. So I suppose you edit without noticing it because you don't edit. And this is what really interests me about cooking. While I think food is very worthy of intellectual study, I think what is interesting is when you cook, your you're not having thoughts you know you have sensation instead you have the feel of the dough in your fingers or the smell of of a cake in the oven or the noise onions make as they fry which is a different noise the more cooked they become so you're having to live in a very different world it's the realm of the senses and I find that So much of modern life, there's so much fizzing and popping in your mind, and there's so much that takes place from the neck up, that I think it's very good just to be a person in your body in your kitchen.
1: Yeah, it's really, you know, we don't fix our cars anymore. Most people don't go hunting anymore. But cooking is the one thing that's sort of left, and that's why I'm quite protective of it.
2: Yes, and also, I'm very urban. So it's really, you know, apart from a walk in a park, but, right. yeah, it's really the way I connect with nature. It makes me feel grounded in that way.
1: You, you also said, you talked about loss and suffering in life mm. and everybody's had that. You said, it's taught me that the universe is random and cruel, chaotic also. So how, if that's your outlook, and I don't disagree at all with that, how do you find happiness in a random, cruel, chaotic universe?
2: You see, I don't regard that as a negative thing to say.
0: <laughs> By
2: which okay, I mean you cannot control the world. Everything right. that matters is largely beyond your control. So you have to be in it and enjoy what's there. And that does, I'm afraid, also consist of a lot of misery but life is precious and maybe i the older i get the more i'm aware of it because i don't want to waste the time i have left you know you know going into the past about what went wrong or Mm. you know all the things that aren't great or what could be better because it seems to me such a self-defeating way of being
1: I, I totally agree. I, as, as someone said, you woke up this morning, lots of people didn't, so enjoy the day. Um, you, you talk about plain cake, and I think this says a lot about you. There's a modesty about a plain cake. It doesn't draw attention to itself or seek to impress. It's there to be sliced as needed, always delivering more than it promises. For me, that that sort of sums up your approach to cooking.
2: <laughs> well, that's a lovely thing of you to say. I do think, again, it goes back to that thing, which is things can look showy and they can be spectacular as well from a technical point of view, but there's a comfort in plainness and I think people might misunderstand an awful lot about plainness because they think plainness equates with blandness and that isn't the case. There's a certain uncluttered palette that you need to appeal to, I, I suppose, and it sort of goes back to what I was saying in my brown food chapter. I you was know, saying that you know everything's meant to make a statement these days, including you. And sometimes you don't want to make a statement. You're not there to shout or to have people put a spotlight on you. You just want to be quietly and comfortably in a room, and food is like that too. So,
1: have you eaten at Heston Blumenthal's? I mean, we're talking about a themed dinner around the summer seaside.
2: I have eaten his food. Um, If I had to say what phrase instills terror in you and makes you want to do a runner, for me, it's tasting menu. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just can't cope with it. And I think it may well be to do with the fact that I wasn't a good eater as a child and I was forced to eat. So for me, it, it, it makes me feel slightly annihilated having choice taken away. It's no no coincidence that I started loving food when I began being in charge of what I ate myself. And my mother was a wonderful cook and I loved her food. I just prefer prefer being in charge. That's why I always say to people whenever someone says, oh, but you're a cook and cooks are so nurturing. I go, listen, they are, but really we're control freaks. Um,
8: Nurturing though
2: we might be, I would find it very difficult if I, if I couldn't say what I was going to eat.
1: No. Okay, so let's we're going to do something now which may be a failure. but we're Oh, gonna no, do you're type... not
2: going to do Rorschach tests, as it were.
1: It depends if you want to do it. No, I'll
2: try, do. but just because it's meant to be quick, doesn't yeah, it... mean I'll be quick. I'm normally quite quick, but when I'm forced to be quick, I, I become pondering.
1: Okay, here we go. A few questions answered quickly or not. Cocktail sausages. Perfect. Nouvelle Cuisine.
2: Mm. <laughs> Actually, it was wonderful when the top people did it, and then it became, right. you know, people misunderstood it. But yes, interesting, but bring me the butter. Here,
1: here's a hard one. Charles Dickens or Henry James?
2: Oh, that's, I don't do those choices. I'm, I'm, oh. um, I, I don't, I want both. However, okay. I think I may have lost the gift of reading Henry James.
1: Yeah, I, I never got through the golden bowl, but Dickens is certainly easier to read. And, I mean, and I assume, David yeah.
2: Copperfield is a book yes. I do return to me too. regularly. And every time I read it, and that's plenty of times now, it's fresh. It's an extraordinary novel. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that it was Freud's favorite novel.
1: Um, this is a question everyone asks. Person from history you'd most like to sit down and have dinner with?
2: Um, it's very difficult. I can't really imagine. I'm more interested in the living than the dead. Vivian Gornick I would love to have dinner with.
1: OK, now you got me. Who's Vivian Gornick? She's
2: a wonderful writer. She's an extraordinarily mm. good writer. You must read Fierce Attachments. But she's, okay. a, but she's really an excellent critic as well. I love her. I love being allowed into her mind. She writes very crisp sentences she always chooses the word that tastes right.
1: And the typical last question, which is last words, what would yours be?
2: I don't know, but I was taught this wonderful thing. These are true last words that Kim Witherspoon, you know, the wonderful mm-hmm. agent, she was Tony Bourdain's agent, and that's how I know her. And she said something to me once, because I was obviously fizzing and popping and worrying about something. And she had gone into hospital to see the mother, you know, elderly, you know, I think she must have been about 90, uh, a mother of a a friend of hers, and she was dying. And at the very last thing, she kind of put her hands up and said, all that worry, and then died. And I think (laughs) I say that to myself a lot, because, Hmm. yes... Don't make it all about the worry. In the end, things happen, they don't happen. Now, it's very hard to be that person and not to worry. I worry about everything. A bit of worry is good. Um, And things, I feel that most things worth doing are frightening. However, those are the last words I find the most valuable. There's wisdom in those words.
1: Yeah, I guess the problem is knowing something and then acting on it. Yeah, but
2: I think you probably only really find out, as she did, on your deathbed. So you may as well just say, <laughs> I'm just going to bimble along as I am. I won't get it. I won't understand it. No, no. I'm getting nearer. And then my last second, I'll go, oh, that's what it was about.
1: <laughs> that is, oh, we all have that to look forward to. <laughs> a revelation at the very last second. Nigella, it's always a pleasure having you here at Milk Street. Thanks so
2: much. I always adore talking to you, Chris. And here's to the next time.
1: That was Nigella Lawson. Her most recent book is Cook, Eat, Repeat, Ingredients, Recipes, and Stories. You can hear an extended version of her interview at MilkStreetRadio.com. That Jella reminded me that food has gone from the humble dining room table to star status on social media, much like a good book being adapted to the screen. Everyday brown food just doesn't stand a chance. And this preference for colorful entertainment is also true of Hollywood. According to critics, the top three movies of all time are The Godfather, Citizen Kane, and Rear Window. But modern media chooses three very different movies, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Karate Kid, and Mad Max Fury Road. So I call this the Citizen Kane conundrum. Great art demands a commitment of both attention and thought. Unfortunately, modern culture demands neither. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Dark Chocolate Tureen with Coffee and Cardamom. Lynn, how are you?
4: I'm doing well, Chris.
1: You know, I remember one of my first French dishes back, I don't know, early 70s was, of course, chocolate mousse.
6: Mm.
1: Very popular dish for a long time. But, of course, I don't know why, everything gets more complicated and more interesting in the culinary world. (laughs) You can't leave good enough alone. So chocolate terrine with coffee and cardamom, similar to mousse, but fancier, right? And better, I would hope.
4: Well, you know... This is what I call a dirty little secret recipe because it's absolutely beautiful, so elegant. It looks like something that's kind of restaurant worthy, and it has a fancy French name. It's called Marquise au Chocolat. But the truth is, it's dead easy to make. You can bank it ahead, and you probably already have everything in your house to make this right now.
1: That almost sounds too good to be true.
4: It does, but luckily It's not. So it's just like a chocolate mousse. You would make a chocolate mousse, which we'll talk about a little bit in a second, and then you pour that into a loaf pan that's lined with plastic, put it in the fridge for several hours, then unmold it, and then slice it. It's kind of a contrast in that, obviously, it's dense enough to hold that shape, but when you take a bite of it, it's that light and airy texture of like the best chocolate mousse you've ever had.
1: Yeah, the first time I tasted it, in the kitchen, I was going like, "Oh, this is going to be, you know, heavy, and it's going to be overwhelmingly chocolatey," and it was surprisingly light. Actually, it's
4: really nice and light. We're using seventy uh, percent cocoa salads, bittersweet chocolate. You melt that with a little bit of butter. And our version has a bit of a more modern twist. So we're kind of drawing on the flavors of Turkish coffee. So we add a little bit of ground cardamom to this. And those kind of floral notes really balance the bitterness of the chocolate. And then we whisk together some sugar and egg yolks over a pot of water on the stovetop. And to that, we add half a cup of strong coffee. So coffee and chocolate are best friends already, but this version we have even just a little more coffee flavor to it. Um, So again, kind of drying off those really kind of more modern flavors of Turkish coffee.
1: Mm -hmm. So this has to sit overnight to set up or just a couple hours? Can you make it on the same day?
4: You can make it on the same day. It has to sit for six hours. But what's really great about this is that typically you would use egg whites to lighten a chocolate mousse. But instead, we're using whipped cream. So we whip the cream and fold that into that base mixture of eggs and chocolate. And what that does is it's significantly more stable, so it can sit for up to three days. So you can make this three days ahead, bring it out to the table, dust it with some cocoa powder, some chocolate shavings on top, slice it for your company, and you look like this superhero who made this really fancy French dessert. But the truth is, it was super easy to put together
1: in yeah, my household, the next day I'd go looking for it and it would be gone. <laughs> and, and no, be no one will admit they got up at 2 in the morning to, <laughs> to finish it off. Uh, Lynn, thank you. An upgrade to chocolate mousse, dark chocolate terrine with coffee and cardamom. Not hard to make. Make it ahead, and it's super light and delicious. Thank you.
4: You're welcome. You can get the recipe for dark chocolate tureen with coffee and cardamom at MilkStreetRadio.com.
1: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. After the break, Dan Pashman and I strategize on the very best way to eat wings. That's coming right up. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet Available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Matapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket. And most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Mowy farm-raised salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Mowie Salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Salmon.us to learn more.
0: Hold up, what was that?
1: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Cheryl Day and I will be answering a few more of your baking questions.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chelsea Bremski from Hamilton, Ohio. Hi, Chelsea. How can we help you today?
10: My dad's favorite cake for his birthday is jello cake. And my aunt used to make it for him but since has stopped doing that and so i just took it upon myself to you know give him something that he really enjoys but i've tried several times and i just cannot get the gelatin to stay suspended in the cake it usually just winds up pulling at the bottom of the cake and just solidifying into a giant sheet oh i've tried it with water holes i've tried it with just a few holes, and it all just ends up, you can barely see anything in the column, and it just all pulls to the bottom, I can't feel what I'm doing.
3: Wow. So we call them poke cakes in the Mm -hmm. South, and what I do is I just take the back of a wooden spoon, and Mm -hmm. I poke holes with that. What do you use? I've used forks.
10: I've used the back of a spoon. I've used sugar bob.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I've used all kinds of different things. And you're making a cake from scratch or a box cake?
10: I'm using a box cake. That's what my aunt used to use. She just used like regular gelatin, regular box cake. And that's what she used to use.
3: Usually, box cakes kind of get that extra, you know, domey top.
10: It kind of does, but I try to slowly pour it over it so at least it seeps into the bottom half.
3: Well, I don't know if this would make a difference, but my cakes, Mm -hmm. you know, if I'm making them from scratch, or like I said, a box cake usually has that dome top, but maybe if Mm -hmm. you tried making it at least level, that would help. So when you're pouring it in, and Mm -hmm. I have never seen it go all the way to the bottom, though. It should be in all of the spheres. I wonder if your jello is too runny when you're pouring it in. Maybe you need to let it set up a little bit.
1: I have a question... You said that the gelatin ends up at the bottom in a layer? Yeah. yeah. It sounds to me like it's running off around the sides of the cake down to the bottom.
10: Uh, it'll go through the entire cake on the bottom.
1: Well, then it sounds to me like it's too hot or the gelatin needs to be cooler. And
3: you're not cooler. poking the holes all the way down to the bottom, right? I tried both, all the way and then halfway. Yeah, I wouldn't do all the way down.
1: I think the gelatin needs to be It cooler. needs to cool down a little
3: bit.
6: Yeah. I mean, okay. you know,
3: it's going to take a while for it to set up. So you just want it where it's still pourable, though, but not too thin. I mean, even if you could spread it on the top, where mm-hmm. it'll kind of go down, because that's what I do with my poke pudding cakes. I just kind of, you know, glop it and pour it. But I think a little bit thicker is what I would say. A little thicker. And then okay. not poke it all the way mm-hmm. to the bottom. Yeah, I would try that. Do you have any other ideas, Chris?
1: Well, the other thing to do is to make your own jello. I mean, take fruit juice and gelatin and make your yeah. own it would actually add a lot of interest to the dessert. Anyway.
3: And then you could make whatever flavor. You can yes, make whatever flavor you want. I know, I gave want. me an idea of all kinds of different
10: flavors now. Oh, you, you've got me in trouble now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. That
3: was the goal. <laughs> Okay. Well, great. Thank you guys for your suggestions. Thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks for calling. no problem. Bye.
1: Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Cheryl and I are here to save you from baking disasters. Give us a call anytime, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or just email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Josh Mandel in Albany, New York.
3: Hi, Josh. How can we help you today?
1: I have occasionally purchased lemon cakes, and they have a kind of a crust on them, a sugary, flaky crust, and I haven't been able to duplicate that at home. I'm wondering if you know how I might be able to do that. I would use confectioner's sugar and lemon juice, and maybe a little Mm -hmm. lemon zest in it, too, and glaze, you know, put that on, when it comes out of the oven would work. You can also use melted butter and granulated sugar. You get sort of a crunchier layer on the outside of a cake that way. Mm -hmm. Cheryl, thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, you definitely, is that kind of the texture you're going for? I think what Chris is saying is when you're preparing the pan and you're baking it, you could prepare it with a little sugar in the pan, or when you bring it out, you can do that little sugar glaze on top, a really thin glaze, though, and it just kind of does that crackly delicious. Right. Is that kind of what yeah, you're that's thinking? What I'm looking... Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. That's the one.
1: I had tried sprinkling sugar in the bottom of the pan, mm-hmm. but that just gave me sort of a sandy texture uh-huh. on the top.
3: But that confectioner sugar, not like a thick glaze, but just a really thin... Glaze, and then it just creates this little crackly top that is so delicious. That's definitely yeah. a bakery secret. <laughs>
1: that's what I'm going for.
3: Well, good. All right, that's
1: the answer: powdered sugar, lemon juice, make it a thin glaze. It'll work.
9: Great, thank you so Baking
1: much. Yeah, fun. thanks for calling. Enjoy. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, let's hear from our friend Dan Pashman.
6: Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. I'm getting psyched up for the Super Bowl. Are you psyched?
1: Um, No. <laughs> I'll probably check in like just before halftime just to see what's going on. <laughs> no, no. If the Patriots are playing, I would definitely watch.
8: Absolutely. Right.
6: Well, look, I think it's a great day. It's a fun day to gather together. Even if you don't like football, the commercials are fun. And yeah. the food is good, okay? Yeah. Let me tell you something, Chris. Do you know? Uh, go ahead and guess. How many wings do you think Americans will consume on Super Bowl Sunday?
1: Uh, 42 million.
6: Not even close.
1: (laughs) More? Really?
6: Yes. How many? 1.6 billion. No! Yes. Really? 1.6 billion wings. But I don't think most of those wings will be eaten correctly. Oh, no. Here we go. First of all, people need to understand that wings are... A sort of distant cousin in the fried chicken family. I agree. And that means that when it comes out of the fryer, it's crispy. And when you cover it in sauce and then let the wings sit, you are destroying that crisp, which to me is a cardinal culinary sin to destroy crisp. I totally agree with you. I mean, the, okay. the skin gets soft. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it does. So I recommend getting your wings with the sauces on the side. And I'll give you another reason why I think it's preferable. Not just, as we discussed, it preserves the crisp to the last second. But also, it's hard when you're ordering for people coming over to watch the game. And it's like, do I get three dozen hot and two dozen mild? Or three dozen mild and two dozen hot? How many teriyaki? How many barbecue? And once the sauce is on them, they're done. Wait, can I ask you a question? Yeah.
1: If you go and order them and say, look, could you put the sauce on the side, are
6: people going to look at you funny? You may get some funny looks, yes. But, you know, that has never stopped me, Chris. Good point. <laughs> Excellent point. Yeah. Look, if you're going to make your own wings and you're going to toss them in a pan and serve them immediately, right. then I'm okay with saucing. But I don't think it's a great way to enjoy a Super Bowl party. Can I just ask a question? So most people for the
1: Super Bowl have bet some money. They're actually interested in the outcome of the game. Are, are you focused right. on, on the wing issue here, or or do you get over that?
6: It depends a little bit on who's playing. I'm, I'm a New York Giants fan, so if the Giants were playing, I wouldn't be thinking at all about the food. Good. But I will say that I I don't eat wings that often. And so when I eat them, I want them to be very delicious. One more question for you, Chris. Yeah. When you make wings or order wings, there's two options. There's the little mini drumsticks. Then there's the piece that's called the flat. That's the one with the two parallel bones inside. Which do you prefer? Drumstick. Why? Because the, the, the problem
1: with with the two bones is the meat in between the bones. I mean, you have to kind of like stick your tongue through it or something. <laughs> it's kind of hard to get that out sometimes. I mean, they, they
6: have good meat on them, though. But... <sighs> Chris we were so close to getting through this segment oh, and Lord. ending in full agreement what a shame because you you because it, it's meatier right is that why you like it the flat has a higher meat to bone right. ratio and a higher fat to meat ratio which means not only is there more meat but it's more tender meat the key is to go to the top of the flat where the two bones meet dig your thumb in between and pull the skinny bone out oh and then you have one bone that is effectively like a mini rib it's one bone with all of the most tender, most juicy meat around it. It's, it is a little bit more work, but I think well worth it.
1: Dan Pashman, I think you finally changed my life. Wow. Did we end this segment in total agreement, Chris? No. Did I win you I, over? I, 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 I'm just expressing gratitude for the fact oh. that my culinary world has now been turned upside down.
6: Well, thanks. I appreciate it.
1: Dan Pashman on um, the Super Bowl and uh, Super Wings. Thank you. Enjoy your wings, Chris. That was Dan Pashman. He's the host of the Sparkful Podcast and also inventor of the pasta shape, Cascatelli. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get every recipe, access to all live stream cooking classes and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store and more. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening.
9: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Klapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sidney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Berndle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.